The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s. I am your host, Chris Gooling. It's the unavoidable topic of the day. Not since the civil rights movement of the 1960s have so many people raised their voices to speak out against systemic racism and police violence that disproportionately affects people of color. They told us we wouldn't get here. Now with those who said that we would get here only over their dead bodies. Well, yes, Talk, talk. Yep. All the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. Black voices are encouraging people everywhere to re-examine our own beliefs and perceptions of racism. One such way we can do this is to examine the history of our entertainment. It wasn't all that long ago, within the lifetime of many listeners of this podcast, that it was unusual, revolutionary even, to see a non-white character appear as a regular cast member on a television series in a non-subservient equal role. From the beginning, television was nearly an all-white medium. African-American actors in particular were marginalized into one-dimensional portrayals almost always showing up as a servant or as comic relief. While working to write other Forgotten TV episodes, it has been hard to focus on anything other than current world events over the last few months. So instead of the regularly scheduled topic, I felt it appropriate to shift gears for an episode and use this modest platform to focus on black voices of TV history. I'm skipping the usual support the podcast messaging. Producers and how to support the show will be mentioned during the end credits. Now, I realize I'm just a white boy from the Gulf Coast, 
It is not my intention to take away from the voices of people of color or to try to whitesplain black TV history to them. Much of the information I'm presenting has already been researched and presented by black writers and historians in books and magazine articles who will be referenced in the end credits. And it wouldn't surprise me that some listeners of color may already be aware of nearly everything that will appear in this episode. But I'll bet most of this will be totally new to my largely white audience. I know many of these details were new to me. While researching, I found that black history is inextricably tied to the history of television in the 20th century, from the very beginning, with groundbreaking appearances far earlier than is generally known. Before we start, it should be noted that use of the outdated terms colored and negro will appear in this podcast when quoted from original sources. So sit back and enjoy this rare excursion outside the normal 70s and 80s TV era. In the late 19th and early 20th century, black representation in film was nearly always stereotypical depictions of slaves, nannies, house servants, criminals, or other roles in which they were subservient to whites. The few exceptions were films produced by all black production companies, such as the Foster Photoplay Company, and later the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. Foster's The Railroad Porter in 1912 broke new ground with an entirely black cast and director, and was not a film that drew on stereotypical representations. The film was preceded in theater showings by another first, an all-black newsreel featuring a YMCA parade. The film's star, stage actress Lottie Grady, would sing to audiences while the film reels were changed. A synopsis from the New York Age states the film dealt with a young wife who, thinking her husband had gone out on his run, invited a fashionably dressed chap who was a waiter at one of the colored cafes on State Street to dine. However, the husband did not go out and upon returning home, found wifey sitting at the table serving the waiter all the delicacies of the season. Mr. Husband proceeds to get his revolver, which he uses carelessly, running the unwelcome visitor back to his home. Then the waiter gets his revolver and returns the compliment. No one is hurt, and all ends happily. Later films that came out of the Harlem Renaissance, such as those by Oscar Micheaux, also offered non-stereotypical depictions of people of color. Typically, though, these positive depictions were not seen by white audiences. Even worse, they were likely to possibly not even see actual African Americans featured at all, but white actors in blackface. The first feature-length talking film 1927's The Jazz Singer not only infamously featured performer Al Jolson in blackface, the use of this imagery was central to the narrative and theme of the film. The film won that year's Academy Award for writing, as well as an honorary one for its groundbreaking use of sound. Al Jolson's film Wonder Bar from 1934 had one of the worst stereotypical representations of African Americans likely seen on screen ever in its extended blackface sequence. 
When blacks did appear in film, they were often portrayed as incompetent, lazy, or simple-minded. Such was the case with early film stars Willie Best and Step and Fetch It. Lincoln, Theodore, Monroe, and Drew Perry, who went by the stage name Step and Fetch It, was a vaudeville and film actor, the first black actor to receive a featured screen credit. This highly literate man that wrote for a newspaper column on screen took the persona of the laziest man in the world. Film historian Mel Watkins describes Perry's film character. The lazy man character that he played was based on something that had come from slavery. It was called putting on old massa. Break the tools, break the hoe, do anything to postpone the work that was to be done. Perry, as Step and Fetch It, was widely seen, appearing in some 44 films from 1927 to 1939. While audiences laughed, Perry laughed all the way to the bank, becoming the first black actor to earn a million dollars. Perry's appearance in the Our Gang film A Tough Winter was later pulled from TV syndication and home video packages. Many people my age grew up watching sanitized versions and don't realize the Our Gang or Little Rascals shorts, as they were later known on television, often contained extensive racial caricatures and in 1971 started to be edited with some pulled altogether. The treatment of blacks in the Our Gang films was a mixed bag. On one hand, they were a melting pot of kids playing together as friends with enough mischief to go around, regardless of race. On the other hand, black characters like Sunshine Sammy, Farina, Stymie, and Buckwheat were sometimes depicted in stereotypical ways. In more than one short, when the rascals are making wishes as if to a genie, Stymie wishes for a watermelon. In another, he makes the following request. I wish my pappy was out of jail. I wished I had some chicken. Stymie referred to the potential of his pappy being in jail more than a couple of times. As black men, not returning home due to being jailed for minor offenses was a reality during this era. In yet another short, Spanky appears in blackface to impersonate Buckwheat. Again, blackface and the influence of the old minstrel shows of the 19th century saturated early 20th century entertainment. The Our Gang comedies, in fact, were built around Hal Roach's 1921 film, The Pickaninny, with Sunshine Sammy, eight-year-old Ernie Morrison, referred to in a studio promotional ad as the funny little darky of the Hal Roach comedies. The title of the film referring to the dominant racial caricature of black children for most of this country's history. Willie Best, another widely known black actor of this era, was also often called to play upon racial stereotypes. Credited as Sleep and Eat in six of the 124 films he appeared in, the fact that as a bit player he received credit at all in 77 of them was highly unusual and a credit to Mr. Best. Appearing alongside the Marx Brothers, Bob Hope, Laurel and Hardy, and Shirley Temple, when Lincoln Perry became difficult to work with, 
demanding equal billing with white co-stars, Willie Best began to be used as a replacement. But the stereotypes didn't end with on-screen character depictions. The statements of studio publicists about Willie Best himself remain as some of the most outrageous examples of Hollywood racist propaganda I can find. Warner Brothers proclaimed him as the man who replaced Step and Fetch It as the screen's slowest moving, slowest talking human. Another claimed, when he is not in a scene, he is usually found curled up in a corner sleeping. They also boasted he gets a nice salary, but the studio only gives him $5 a week and puts the rest in a trust fund so he will have some of it left as he spends every cent of it as fast as he gets it and doesn't care. On television, Willie Best was seen in the 1950s sitcoms Trouble with Father and My Little Margie. Bob Hope co-starred with him on 1940s The Ghost Breakers and said, He was the best actor I know. The dominant image of black women in early mainstream 20th century film was often that of the mammy archetype. This racial caricature is rooted in the history of slavery, as African-American women were often tasked with domestic duties of the household. The mammy image eventually arose, that of an overweight, mature, dark-skinned, maternal figure, content with her life of devotion to the service of the white family she belonged to. She was often depicted wearing an apron and a white or red bonnet on her head. This image gained popularity following the Civil War, was popularized through the minstrel shows of the pre-film era, as well as widely used in advertising to sell everything from flour to motor oil. Aunt Sally baking powder, Louisiana coffee, Aunt Dinah molasses. Yes, Mammy represented wholesomeness and could be trusted. And though her face has changed over the years, you almost certainly have had that most famous of mammies in your pantry, Aunt Jemima. During the writing of this podcast, Aunt Jemima made the news as Quaker Oats announced they would be retiring the 131-year-old brand as part of its journey toward racial equality. In response, many people started sharing half-truths and outright fabrications about Aunt Jemima making a number of claims that appear to cast the brand in a positive light. However, the history of Aunt Jemima, one of the original racist caricatures performed in blackface at minstrel shows in the late 19th century, is well documented. And the truth paints a much different picture than the sanitized corporate timeline found on Quaker Oats' website. During the World War I years, what was then the Aunt Jemima Mills Company began to print a backstory about the fictional character featuring the absurd legend that Louisiana Mammy Aunt Jemima was paid in gold for a pancake recipe while a slave. This 100-year-old corporate propaganda campaign, reinforced by public appearances and a later radio show, were so successful, many people unknowingly parrot this fictional history today. Aunt Jemima will pop up again in our consideration. 
In film, the mammy myth would be perpetuated in features such as 1915's Birth of a Nation with actress Jenny Lee, 1934's Imitation of Life with actress Louise Beavers, and most famously in 1939's Gone with the Wind with actress Patty McDaniel. This was the cultural landscape of how people of color were depicted on film when television arrived on the scene in the 1930s. In the United States, television is widely believed to have been introduced to the general public in 1939, when RCA famously featured it in their exhibit at the World's Fair in New York. In reality, the prior year, DeMont Laboratories had already offered TV sets for sale to the general public, nearly a full year before anyone else. And experimental television broadcast stations had existed as early as 1928, a discussion of which would take up its own podcast. NBC began semi-regular experimental broadcasts in 1938 on New York station W2XBS, the so-called Channel One. The National Broadcasting Company, a service of RCA, erected the transmitting antenna for experimental television station W2XBS. These early broadcasts of radio with pictures were typically news, sporting events, religious services, and Broadway plays. However, the influence of the 1939 New York World's Fair on the public awareness and perception of this new medium cannot be understated. In April of that year, RCA, GE, and DeMont all offered television sets for sale. On April 30th, Franklin D. Roosevelt became the first U.S. president to be broadcast on television when he gave a speech at the opening ceremony. America's world of tomorrow is ready for its formal debut, the mighty exhibition which is a monument to imagination, showmanship, and industry. To see the exhibits of 58 nations, crowds pour in from subways, trains, buses, and cars, half a million strong. And for 40,000 invited guests, the moment has come. Attendees of the fair could step in front of a camera and be broadcast on television themselves and receive a commemorative card stating that they had been televised. And it was that summer that TV history was made. On June 14th, station W2XBS, immediately following four and a half hours of broadcasts from the 1939 World's Fair, actress and blues singer Ethel Waters appeared in her own television special midway into her long, illustrious career. This was broadcast likely to an audience of not much more than 200 installed TV households in New York City, most of these previously authorized by NBC to receive their experimental broadcasts, with the rest being early adopter consumers that had just purchased a set. However, hundreds more crowded available television receivers in studio control rooms and viewing rooms in offices at what was then known as the RCA building at 30 Rockefeller Plaza to witness the event. The Ethel Waters Show thus became the first time a person of color was broadcast on television to the public.
on The Ethel Waters Show, along with African-American actresses Freddie Washington and Georgette Harvey, Waters performed a dramatic sequence from her hit play, Mamba's Daughters. Also appearing in various skits were actors Philip Loeb and Joey Fay. Stage plays were a popular choice for broadcasts in the pre-commercial TV era, especially for NBC, who due to a technical screw-up while airing a theatrical film in 1938, were unable to obtain rights to air movies on television for several years. These dramatic plays were usually abridged to one hour, thus early on establishing the one-hour format for dramatic television. Who was Ethel Waters? She had gained popularity as a singer due to her non-traditional, soft, unique voice that stood out from others that sang the blues. Prior to television, in 1921, Waters had become the fifth black woman to make a commercial record with the label Black Swan Records. She was one of, if not the, first black woman to be broadcast on the radio in 1922. Her first hit was Dinah in 1925. She started a film career in 1929, appearing in On With The Show, performing Am I Blue, which became her signature song. Am I blue? I'll mention two other notable songs of her career, both from 1933. That year, Irving Berlin's Broadway play, As Thousands Cheer, debuted, and Waters sang Suppertime to white audiences. What was the theme of Suppertime? In Ethel's words, It told the story of a colored woman preparing the evening meal for her husband who had been lynched. If one song can tell the whole tragic history of a race, Supper Time was that song. In singing it, I was telling my comfortable, well-fed, well-dressed listeners about my people, those who had been slaves and those who were now downtrodden and oppressed. A hanged man was seen in background silhouette on stage as Waters sang. This Broadway show was the first time an African-American star was given equal billing alongside white actors. The other song was Stormy Weather, which she introduced at the famous Cotton Club in Harlem, describing it as the theme song of her life. Just months prior to her 1939 television appearance, she was again starring on Broadway in that dramatic play, Mamba's Daughters, to critical acclaim. She would return to television 11 years later as the star of The Beulah Show in 1950, becoming one of the first African-Americans to star in a television series, which we'll cover in a bit. Years later, in 1962, she was the first black woman to be nominated for an Emmy Award. On top of all these firsts was yet another. Unknown to the general public at this time, in an age where they could be prosecuted for same-sex activity, Waters had a long relationship with dancer Ethel Williams. Appearing together on stage, they ruled the Harlem nightclub scene as the two Ethels. 
although they went to great lengths to conceal their relationship. Ethel Waters is thus now recognized as an extremely early queer, black, and female representation on television. Prior to all of this, however, the world was nearly deprived of her talent. Touring Alabama as a young vaudeville singer, she was involved in a near-fatal car crash. This was when blacks were excluded from most hospitals, especially in the Jim Crow South, so she was taken to a mental institution. There, she was treated poorly and left largely to die by the white medical staff. A white nurse happened to recognize her, snuck her out of the facility, and onto a train bound to where she would get the medical aid of a black doctor who saved her leg with surgery that had to be performed without anesthesia, which was not made available to black patients. Another potentially life-threatening instance early in her career happened when she was booked at a theater gig in Macon, Georgia. There, she learned of a boy who had been lynched for talking back to a white man. Her decision to sing Little Black Boy at his funeral infuriated the locals, and she had to plot a fast escape from the menacing theater manager and the police. These are just a few highlights of Waters' tumultuous life. Ethel Waters, who considered herself a Christian from an early age, rededicated herself to her religion and ended her career singing for the Billy Graham Crusade, where she was known to sing her favorite gospel, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Although she had earned the equivalent of several fortunes during her long career, she died in near poverty from multiple causes in 1977 at age 80. As noted, Ethel Waters returned to television in 1950 on The Beulah Show. Starring Ethel Waters as Beulah. Beulah had been a character on various radio shows before moving to television, the character appearing as early as 1939 on radio shows like Showboat, That's Life, and Fibber McGee and Molly. Modern day listeners might be surprised to learn that on radio, the character of Beulah was played by Marlon Hurt, a white male actor. Yes, the shadow of blackface carried over to radio. Hurt portrayed the jovial Beulah as a quintessential mammy character, and he was known as a master of what was perceived by the radio audience to be black dialect. When Hurt died suddenly in 1946, he was replaced by another white actor, Bob Corley. In 1947, the character was finally played by a black actress when CBS Radio brought on Hattie McDaniel, who had won an Oscar in 1939 for Gone with the Wind, paying her $1,000 a week. While McDaniel played Beulah on the radio, The Beulah Show was adapted for ABC television in 1950, with Ethel Waters cast in the role. 
Waters played Beulah for 39 episodes until June of 1951, when she quit the role, and none other than Hattie McDaniel, still playing the character on radio, was called in to replace her. McDaniel only filmed six episodes before falling ill, and she was herself replaced by Louise Beavers, who finished out the series. The Beulah Show thus ended up with four seasons and 78 episodes. However, McDaniel's episodes were held until the beginning of season three. Then, after those six, episodes with Louise Beavers resumed. What was the plot and format of The Beulah Show? Let's turn to the Encyclopedia of Television. A half-hour situation comedy, the program revolved around the whimsical antics of a middle-aged black domestic, Beulah, the so-called queen of the kitchen, and the white family for whom she worked, Harry and Alice Henderson and their young son, Donnie. Beulah's boyfriend, Bill Jackson, ran a fix-it shop, but managed to spend most of his time hanging around Beulah's kitchen. Beulah's other black companion was Oriole, a feather-brained maid who worked for the white family next door. Storylines tended to involve Beulah coming to the rescue of her employers by providing a great spread of southern cuisine to impress Mr. Henderson's business clients, teaching the awkward Donnie how to dance jive and impress the girls, or saving the Henderson's stale marriage. A regular comedic feature of the show involved Bill hyperbolically proclaiming his devotion to Beulah, while always finding a reason why the two could not wed just yet. Why did Ethel Waters quit this prominent TV role? Well, first, Bud Harris, the first actor to play Bill, quit his role after just three episodes. He complained the show's writers were forcing him to play the character as an Uncle Tom and engage in comic activity he found degrading to his race. The show was also under fire by critics, like the widely printed John Crosby, whose columns I came across more than once, as well as the NAACP, who condemned the show for its derogatory depictions of people of color. Ethel Waters evidently agreed, and after playing the role for the entire first season, resigned. What on the surface might seem a positive portrayal of a black woman of the era, as Beulah capably ran the household, dispensing folk wisdom, solving problems of the family, the character was still one that echoed the stereotypical mammy caricature from decades past. With all these efforts done in the service of the white family she belonged to, Beulah was never even given a last name. There is a reason Hattie McDaniel and Louise Beavers were also both brought on for the role. They were well known to audiences for their prior Mammy portrayals in many films, most notably as Mammy in Gone with the Wind and Aunt Delilah in Imitation of Life, respectively. And for all the supposed wisdom of the Beulah character, Waters and others were forced to open episodes with self-deprecating lines, such as, Who spends most of her time in the kitchen, but never seems to know what's cooking. The best things in life may be free, but I'm sure willing to spend two bucks on a marriage license. 
Show. If marriages are made in heaven, my guardian angel has sure been loafing on the job. <laughs> After the Beulah Show left the air, it would be 15 years before a black woman would again star in a TV series. Beulah is often cited as the first to feature a black actor to star in a regular TV series. However, these citations overlook the contributions of the forgotten Dumont Network. Dumont, first with the finest in television. Founded in 1946 by Dr. Alan B. Dumont, a pioneer in the development of the cathode ray tube and the all-electronic television set, Dumont was revolutionary among the fledgling TV networks in a couple of ways. First, in an age when the other TV networks would sell commercial sponsorship of a show to a single sponsor, Dumont sold commercials to many different advertisers per show, freeing producers of individual shows from any power held over them by sole sponsors. This became standard TV practice, still done today. Second, with the sign-on of station WDTV in Pittsburgh, it became the first TV network where the same program could be seen in two time zones simultaneously via coaxial cable hookup. Dumont featured popular shows of the day like Cavalcade of Stars, Captain Video and his Video Rangers, Captain Video. and the popular sitcom The Goldbergs. And at a time when the other TV networks aired very little programming for non-whites, Dumont was a pioneer of doing just that. It aired The Gallery of Madame Liu Song, starring Asian-American film actress Anna Mae Wong, the first U.S. TV show to star an Asian-American. Elder Michaud aired in 1948, a half-hour religious program featuring black evangelist Lightfoot Solomon Michaud. In 1947, a variety talent show called Look Upon a Star aired on the network. In one episode, a black male and white female danced together. And according to the November 1st edition of newspaper The Afro-American, this created a controversy, with more than 100 objecting letters received. In response, Joseph Cates, one of the producers of the series, was quoted as saying, as producers, we exercise the democratic privilege of producing our own shows as we see fit. The prejudiced television viewer can exercise his democratic privilege of switching his dial off or to a different station. And in 1948, DeMont aired a TV show called The Laytons. Initially only airing on local New York station WABD in May, it aired sporadically that summer until August 4th, when it became the first regularly scheduled, scripted network TV program featuring an African-American actor. Amanda Randolph starred as Martha, the cheerful, capable maid to the Layton family. White actress Vera Tatum also starred as Mrs. Ruth Layton on this series that ran on the Dumont Network until October 13th, of that year. So little is known about this show, books and articles that mention the Laytons state we don't have a record of the rest of the cast. However, my original research finds Broadway actress Elizabeth Brew was also a cast member, 
playing daughter Ginny Layton. IMDb now reflects this finding. And I found that the head of the Layton household, George Layton, was a doctor, although who played him is still lost to time. Only one production photo of this series is known to exist, since it, along with virtually all Dumont Network shows, was performed live no film or kinescope recordings are known to have ever been made. By the end of its run, it was seen in the New York, New Haven, Connecticut, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and Philadelphia markets. However, we do have a surviving script for the Laytons, found in a 1952 TV writer's guide. In the episode, Mrs. Layton's Uncle Charlie comes to visit and gets in everybody's way. He has plans to repaint the living room red with apple green molding and hang a moose head above the fireplace. Even Martha wants him to leave and hatches a plan to tell Uncle Charlie his sister, who he didn't get along with, was also coming for a visit. This prompts a hasty departure from Uncle Charlie, who takes his moose head with him. The series was billed as a domestic comedy, and although the term wasn't used until the 1950s, Reading the script, it certainly qualifies as a sitcom. And the annoying relative overstaying their welcome, as well as the unwanted moosehead wall decor, was certainly a trope used many times in sitcoms through the years. In addition, while earlier sitcoms had a 15-minute runtime, I discovered that this show seems to be the first scripted situation comedy to use the 30-minute format. In a TV landscape then filled with news, variety, public affairs programs, and game shows, The Latents was truly the forerunner of all sitcoms that came after it. Shortly after The Latents ended, Amanda Randolph also hosted her own daytime variety show on DuMont, called simply Amanda. This was one of the very few programs aired during the day and featured Randolph in what was virtually a one-woman show, where she sang a variety of songs from spirituals to boogie-woogie. This made Amanda Randolph the first black woman to host a regularly scheduled network TV show. In addition to these firsts, I discovered she was the first black person in any TV commercial. In 1944, in an experimental TV broadcast of the radio show Ladies Be Seated, she delivered a commercial. Yes, for Aunt Jemima Pancake Mix. Aunt Jemima! I wish I was the the Smiling, happy Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. What's a good word, Aunt Jemima? Well, Mr. Lyon, folks says there's nothing so pretty as a happy face and nothing so worthwhile as a happy life. Yes, Aunt Jemima, that is true. And now here's the chorus and some worthwhile listening. While there had been TV commercials before, Bull of the Watches in 1941, and technically the NBC announcer read ad copy for Procter & Gamble as early as 1939, this was still a very early example of a TV commercial before the format later gelled into what we recognize today. Yes, she portrayed the fictional Aunt Jemima on radio for several years, from 1944 to possibly as late as 1952 or 53, having taken over the role from white actresses 
Tess Gardella, Harriet Widmer, and Vera Lane. Reflecting the minstrel show origins of its caricature, even Aunt Jemima could not escape the shadow of blackface. A 1950 DuMont Network offering gave us the first black female host of a prime-time network variety show with The Hazel Scott Show. The multi-talented Scott had been a regular on radio and was one of the first Afro-Caribbean women to be featured in major Hollywood movies. She was also very outspoken against racism. She successfully sued a restaurant for refusing to serve her and, in the South, refused to perform before segregated audiences. This made her a target, and soon after her show debuted, Scott was listed in Red Channels, a compilation naming entertainers believed to be communist or communist sympathizers issued by the House Un-American Activities Committee. A week after she appeared to deny being connected to the party in front of the HUAAC, her show was canceled before it was quite three months old. Why is DuMont the forgotten network? For such a groundbreaking TV network, it had an ignominious end. As competition grew between the TV networks and television itself, now a thriving, viable commercial medium, with 72% of households owning a TV set by 1956, Dumont lacked the funding for an extended battle with the other three networks. ABC also nearly collapsed due to financial reasons, but Dumont also had only three O&O stations. That's owned and operated local TV stations it could truly count on to remain with Dumont. Dumont sought out a merger with ABC, but for multiple reasons, this never happened. By 1955, they ran out of funding and realized they would not be able to continue operations. The last Dumont broadcast, technically, was a boxing match in August 1956, but the network had already been virtually dead for nearly a year. Dumont had produced more than 20,000 television episodes over the prior 10 years. Although the earliest shows were performed live and never recorded at all, later on, many of their TV shows were filmed on Kinescope, where a film camera aimed at a TV monitor filmed the show as it aired live. And some of their final shows were recorded on videotape after that technology was developed. What happened to all these recordings? Well, in 1958, some of these kinescopes were destroyed to recover the silver content. The rest? Well, you're not going to believe this. Over the decades, the surviving DeMont Library was stored in warehouses, and by the late 80s, they were simply lost track of. For years, no one knew what became of the DeMont Library. Then, in Los Angeles, March 1996, at a public hearing before the panel of the Library of Congress, over 20 experts testified on the subject of film and television preservation. Among these was Edie Adams, widow of TV entertainer Ernie Kovacs. After testifying about her efforts to preserve her late husband's broadcasts over the years working at various networks, she revealed what she says happened to the DeMont Library. In the earlier 70s, the DuMont network was being bought by another company, 
and the lawyers were in heavy negotiation as to who would be responsible for the library of the DeMont shows currently being stored at the facility, who would bear the expense of storing them in a temperature-controlled facility, take care of the copyright renewal, etc. One of the lawyers doing the bargaining said that he would take care of it in a fair manner, and he did take care of it. At 2 a.m. the next morning, he had three huge semis back up to the loading dock at ABC filled them all with stored kinescopes and two-inch videotapes, drove them to a waiting barge in New Jersey, took them out on the water, made a ride at the Statue of Liberty, and dumped them in the upper New York Bay. Very neat. No problem. Not only the shows discussed here, but Jackie Gleason's Cavalcade of Stars, the original pre-CBS Honeymooners, episodes of Captain Video and his Video Rangers, the Ernie Kovacs show, reportedly sit at the bottom of New York Harbor to this day. Did this really happen? Edie Adams' story was secondhand, incorrect on a couple of details, and is evidently unsubstantiated. But the reality is, the Dumont Television Library had been stored reportedly at an ABC warehouse until it wasn't. On behalf of everyone up here, Ernie and Ronnie Hayden, Bob Hammond and his birds, Mellow Lark, Maury Amsterdam, Lynn Roberts, Tommy Lynn, and all the boys in the band, it's been our pleasure being with you. And until we see you again, good night and thank you. Let's not overlook the contributions of local TV. From the start, there were variety shows. A carryover from radio, the variety show format brought skits, dancing, comedy, and musical performances into homes for the first time with picture alongside the sound. Black performers had been seen almost from the start. Viewers had seen Ethel Waters and Amanda Randolph on network, and local TV stations added to the variety show content available allowing people at home to see the faces of black entertainers, perhaps for the first time. Ella Fitzgerald, Eartha Kitt, Cab Calloway, Pearl Bailey, Duke Ellington. In 1948, the CBS affiliate station aired The Bob Howard Show, where radio star Bob Howard entertained New York audiences five nights a week with piano and song, singing as time goes by on the initial broadcast. This made Bob the first African-American to host a regular TV program, as this predated Amanda Randolph's program by about four months. Bob Howard quickly adapted to the medium and knew how to engage the camera, and thus the viewing audience at home, remaining on the air for 13 months. The Bob Howard Show was well-received, and CBS soon developed a nationally broadcast variety show with all black performers. In September 1949, Sugar Hill Times debuted, hosted by Apollo Theater MC Willie Bryant. Among the many performers featured during its run was young newcomer Harry Belafonte. We'll be back with Beulah in just a moment. If I were to ask you what daily homemaking job you dislike most, you'd probably say dishwashing. Well, here's an amazing new miracle that ends washing, ends wiping. It's new self-washing drift. 
With work saving, float away action. I just put my dishes in warm dreft suds for two minutes and let dreft do the work for me. Look, here's how dreft's float away action gets under grease and floats it away. I don't do any work. Now, I simply rinse and the dishes shine without wiping. And self-washing dreft gets pots and pans sparkling clean without scouring. Yet new dreft is so mild, leaves hands smooth and soft. No wash, no wipe tonight. No wash, no wipe tonight. Self-washing dreft means no work left. No wash, no wipe tonight. Get new dreft tomorrow. Be with us again next week when Procter & Gamble, the makers of deep cleaning Oxidol for the family wash and self-washing dreft for dishes and fine washables, bring you The Beulah Show. As we continue in the 1950s, representations of non-whites on television were very thin. Apart from The Beulah Show, the other network TV series to feature black performers was also the subject of much criticism the 1951 CBS show, Amos and Andy. Like Beulah, Amos and Andy was a comedy series that had its origins on radio, starting on local Chicago station WGN in 1928. And also like Beulah and Aunt Jemima, the black characters of Amos and Andy were originally performed by white voice actors. Freeman Gosden and Charles Coral were familiar with minstrel show tradition. Their first popular radio show, Sam and Henry, about a couple of colored characters, which they also voiced, is often called the first situation comedy on the relatively new broadcast medium. When the pair wanted to distribute the hit show to other radio stations by means of phonograph records, their broadcaster, WGN, rejected this idea. Thus, the pair revamped the characters, and in March 1928, Amos and Andy began airing on WMAQ. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Amos and Andy Show. Gosden and Coral voiced over 170 male characters throughout the radio run of the show. After only two years, the show was so popular, RKO brought them to screen in the film Check and Double Check, with the duo playing the characters in blackface. The film was very successful for RKO, but studio research indicated the big draw of the film was the novelty factor of audiences seeing their favorite radio performers in blackface on screen for the first time. While a few moviegoers may have been surprised, it was well known Amos and Andy were voiced by white actors. Newsprint ads widely ran advertising the film, showing cutout photos of the pair in character. The Austin Statesman ran a still image of the film, showing the pair with their hands up, with the caption, Now ain't dat something. Amos and Andy, famed blackface radio team, will come to the Hancock Theater Saturday in their comedy hit Check and Double Check, which will remain in Austin for a week's run. With the audience's curiosity now satisfied, RKO declined to pursue a sequel. Gosden and Coral themselves seemed embarrassed by the film, with Gosden later calling it just about the worst movie ever. 
Still, the radio show was insanely popular. Newspaper ads name-dropped the show to sell new radio units. Here, Amos and Andy, regularly on a 1936 Philco. And retailers held Amos and Andy-themed sales, complete with life-size standees with the pair advertising for Pepsodent toothpaste, and sold Plenamins Vitamins, wrapped in special Amos and Andy packaging. Some historians contend it was the most popular radio show ever broadcast with some 25 million regular listeners. When the comedy duo sold all rights to Amos and Andy to CBS in 1948 for an incredible $2.5 million, work started on finding their replacements for the planned television show, with President Harry Truman and General Dwight Eisenhower both voicing their opinions on who to cast. Interviewing some 2,000 black actors for the roles, settling on Alvin Childress, called a slight, sweet-faced actor from Meridian, Mississippi, in the role of Amos, and Spencer Williams for Andy, a hefty six-foot actor who wore his brown derby with a plum. Additional characters were played by Tim Moore, Kingfish, Ernestine Wade, Sapphire, Johnny Lee, Calhoun, and Amanda Randolph as Mama. Thus, Amos and Andy became the first scripted television series with an all-black cast. Set in the New York neighborhood of Harlem, many stories centered on Kingfish's various schemes and scams to get rich, as well as domestic difficulties with wife Sapphire and her Mama. As might be expected, the show played on racial stereotypes for comedy. While Amos was a hard worker and dedicated family man, Andy was a good-natured but slow-witted, shiftless layabout. Kingfish was a greedy two-bit hustler, always into some scheme, typically trying to get one over on Andy. Lightning was a young, slow-moving, step-and-fetch-it type character, and so on. The show went on the air on CBS at the end of June, sponsored by the Blatt's Brewing Company. And within a week, the NAACP formally denounced both it as well as the Beulah show, then concurrently airing, saying they depict the Negro and other minority groups in a stereotypical and derogatory manner. The Michigan Federation of Teachers condemned the TV series, calling it a gross and vulgar caricature of the 15 million Negro citizens of our country. The show's sponsor, Blatt's Brewing, was also called out for their support by the NAACP and other groups. The actors in the series fired back at activists like the NAACP for being ill-informed people of our own race who have irresponsibly threatened a boycott of our sponsor and have unfairly characterized the show, its producers, and ourselves. CBS gave in and pulled the show from its schedule in 1953 with 13 unaired episodes in the can. These were later included and aired in syndication packages. The NAACP protested the reruns as well, and these were finally pulled in 1966. From a technical standpoint, the show was shot on 35mm at Hal Roach Studios, the same studio that had brought us the Our Gang comedies. The multi-camera filming technique was used, quite innovative for a television comedy at the time, 
Although it is often claimed that the multi-camera setup was pioneered for TV by Desi Arnaz for I Love Lucy, I may have been guilty of perpetuating this claim myself. Amos and Andy predated I Love Lucy's use of this method by four months, thus being among the very first TV shows to use it. The original theme song used on radio was The Perfect Song by Joseph Brell. A side note, The Perfect Song had originally been composed as the love theme to that 1915 silent film, Birth of a Nation, infamous for its racist portrayals of African Americans as unintelligent and sexually aggressive toward white women, as well as its heroic depiction of the Ku Klux Klan. Due to a music rights issue, the Amos and Andy show later used the public domain song, Angel Serenade, and this was the theme used when the show went to television. The show remains an odd relic of 50s television, depicting a world in which whites virtually didn't exist, the opposite of nearly every other TV show of the era. Thus the world presented in the show was devoid of racism, but at a time when Beulah and Amos and Andy were the only black representations on television, they seemed dated even for their time, offering a post-World War II America entering the baby boom, a pre-war vision of blacks. The stereotyped caricatures and ethnic humor that had nearly disappeared from the big screen had resurfaced in America's living rooms. Still, the show was later fondly remembered by many people of color, including familiar faces such as Red Fox and Marla Gibbs, who expressed her love for the show while growing up. I enjoyed it immensely. I especially enjoyed Kingfish. Uh, he represented a lot of people that we knew. Of course, it was a little exaggerated because of the writing, but I thought he was a very natural character and very hilarious. And as a matter of fact, most of the people on the show were. It was a very good cast and very well orchestrated and very believable. I don't think that it reflected the wrong image of black people. I think it was the fact that it was the only image of black people. And uh, in that context, the only image of any people, no show can represent that. So it would, it would come up airing if you took it to task to say this really represents the Italian community or the black community or the Oriental community. No, it couldn't do that. And because that's all we had, then I think the NAACP was really trying to say we needed a balance. Instead of saying that, what they said was this show reflected our people in a negative image because other people see us and think that this is the only way we are. And many fondly remember the Christmas episode featuring Andy working as a department store Santa, earning money to buy goddaughter Arbadella a beautiful black talking doll. For all the buffoonery of the characters present in other episodes, here was a loving extended family enjoying their holidays in their cozily decorated home like any other American family. To the background of a choir singing it on the radio, Amos interpreted the Lord's Prayer for his daughter, tucked in bed. But what does the Lord's Prayer really mean, Daddy? Well, uh, you just be quiet and I'll explain it to you. The first line of the Lord's Prayer is this. Our Father, which art in heaven. That means Father of all that is good, where no wrong can dwell. Then it says, 
Hallowed be thy However, it is difficult to ignore the bulk of the stories, which depicted less than exemplary characters, that echoed Hollywood caricatures of decades past, speaking black dialect with endless malapropisms, written, produced, and directed by white men. Therefore, the show has rarely been seen since 1966. It wasn't until 2012 when Rejoice TV, a small independent religious station in Houston, began airing the series weeknights that it aired again regularly for the first time in 46 years. However, this airing was evidently not legitimately syndicated from CBS. While not well known, CBS did more than just pull the show from syndication in 1966, according to late CBS executive Stanley F. Moger. It was signed when CBS, members of the NAACP, and a prominent civil rights leader, the episodes would never be distributed or shown again. I was one of the people that signed the agreement on behalf of CBS. The actual film masters are still in the CBS vaults. In the 1980s, local TV station film prints from pre-1966 syndication were used to make videotapes of the series, which started to be sold by various video distributors. In 1989, CBS sued three distributors doing this and seized their inventory of these videos. Therefore, even though various DVD sets are currently sold online, most are relatively poor bootleg copies, all from these 1980s videotapes. Some copied a number of times before being converted to digital, and are of varying levels of quality. But since 1989, CBS has seemed to abandon legally pursuing sellers distributing the series. Thus, even though places like Restoration Filmworks have done a lot of work collecting and restoring episodes, there has never been a legitimate home video release of Amos and Andy on any format. Before we move into the 1960s, we have to make a stop in 1956. In the evenings, may I come and sing to you. songs that I would like to bring The Nat King Cole Show Singer and jazz pianist Nat King Cole is often credited as the first black man to host a network variety show. But recall that that honor went to Willie Bryant back in 1949. However, the Nat King Cole Show was much more well-known, as was its host, airing at a time when more households had TV and lasting for some 53 episodes across three TV seasons. Unable to book a sponsor prior to production, to NBC's credit, they initially footed the production cost going forward without a sponsor, thinking... Once viewers tuned in Monday nights and saw this quality, sophisticated production, the show would gain a commercial sponsorship. The traditionally told story is that the show never got a sponsor, but that's not exactly true. For a brief time, Arid Deodorant and Rise Shaving Cream 
both backed the show before bowing out. And it is true NBC had a problem getting a national sponsor for the show due to the fear of backlash from less enlightened viewers across the country. Recall, this was in the mid-1950s, and in many southern states, Jim Crow segregation laws were in effect. There were colored bathrooms and water fountains, cafes and lunch counters often refused to serve blacks, and people of color were still being arrested for not giving up their seat for a white person on public transportation. In addition, after a freeze on new broadcast TV licenses was lifted in 1952, many new TV stations were indeed located in the South. Now add to this backdrop an integrated TV program airs. Here was the most widely seen person of color up to this point, not in a subservient or obsequious role, running the show, and alongside black entertainers like Ella Fitzgerald, Sammy Davis Jr., and Count Basie, white guests would also appear, such as Mel Torme, Cornell Wilde, and the King Sisters. So NBC came up with an innovative solution. They put together a patchwork of local sponsors. Rheingold Beer in New York and Connecticut, Gallo Wine and Colgate in Los Angeles, Regal Beer in New Orleans, and Coca-Cola in Houston. About 30 local advertisers. And even though the show did well in the ratings, no company dared to sponsor the show nationally, even though there was reportedly no backlash against the regional sponsorships. Cole himself commented on the issue. Madison Avenue is the center of the advertising industry, and their big clients didn't want their products associated with Negroes. Ad Alley thinks it's still a white man's world. Variety went even further, confirming, At one major agency, the word has gone out. No Negro performers allowed. One other comment about the production of the Nat King Cole show. Mr. Cole was very careful never to put his hands on a white woman and was careful to physically distance himself during duets placing a stool, chair, or other object between himself and the other performer. Cole knew that could instigate violence in some parts of the country. He himself was attacked on stage and beaten, once in Birmingham, Alabama, by members of the White Citizens Council. Indeed, the Birmingham affiliate station was one of the many in the South refusing to air it. Still, as Cole put it, We proved that a Negro star could play host to whites, including women, and we proved it in such good taste that no one was offended. I didn't bend over backwards, but I didn't go out of my way to offend anyone. But without a national sponsor, NBC found it difficult to keep the show in prime time with Cole himself pulling the plug on the show rather than take a less desirable weekend time slot. After December 17, 1957, the Nat King Cole show was no more. Sadly, Cole died in 1965 at age 45. 27 years later, his daughter, Natalie Cole, won multiple Grammy Awards for her song and album, 
Unforgettable, in which her voice was mixed with her late father's, allowing them to sing in a duet, a song he had recorded in 1951. As mentioned, apart from these examples, black representation on television for most of the 1950s was nearly non-existent. Considering such a promising start in 1939 with the At The Waters show and the contributions of the Dumont Network, the sitcoms, game shows, cop shows, or the exploding category of westerns were a virtual sea of white. Oh, you might see a black doctor show up on Dragnet or a black contestant on the $64,000 question. But watching Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, Have Gun Will Travel, The Rifleman, Maverick, or any other popular Western of the day, you'd never get the impression that one in four cowboys in the Old West were black. Gene Roddenberry ran into this issue when being considered to work on the 1959 series Riverboat, set in Mississippi circa 1860 aboard the Riverboat Enterprise. Producers were ready to hire him when it somehow came up that they didn't want black people appearing on the show. A show set in 1860 Mississippi. He states he argued against this so much they dropped him from the job. Indeed, Riverboat never showed a single black person in 44 episodes. The black and white TV era thus largely reflected the still segregated South, with blacks relegated to their own few TV shows. But that was about to change. As the United States entered the 1960s, nearly 90% of households owned a television set, and for the first time, television was being used to shed light on racial inequity. TV news coverage began to come into its own, no longer just repeating news reported by others, but started to be news-gathering operations, bringing you news on the scene visually in a way newspapers and radio weren't able or refused to do, often to the peril of on-the-ground reporters. Dan Rather recalls being routinely shot at covering student desegregation in the early 1960s. Whenever anyone turned on a light, which meant every time we needed to film, one or more bullets would attempt to knock it out. We had to film and move film and move. Thus, network TV news became a window to the burgeoning civil rights movement, broadcasting to some Americans that wouldn't have gotten this news coverage otherwise. TV brought Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech given at the March on Washington in 1963 into America's living room. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The TV networks were thus called everything from 
the communist broadcasting system to the Apple Broadcasting Company, and I'll let you fill in the blank as to what NBC was called, by those wanting to keep the societal status quo when it came to race relations. One NBC affiliate in Montgomery, Alabama, even had their transmitter attacked, knocking the station offline to prevent an interview with Dr. King from being aired. But these efforts could not stop awareness of the burgeoning civil rights movement that was penetrating the zeitgeist. Black characters started notably appearing alongside whites as main characters, no longer relegated to comic relief or subservience. And the social struggle even began making its way into TV storylines. One such storyline that sought to deal directly with the issue of racism in the U.S. Marine Corps was in an episode of Gene Roddenberry's The Lieutenant. The episode was titled To Set It Right, written by Lee Irwin and directed by Vincent McAvity. It featured Don Marshall as a young black Marine who starts a fight with another Marine who he knows to be a racist, played by Dennis Hopper. Nichelle Nichols appears as Marshall's fiance in her first television role. The story is told from two points of view and explored from different angles. Gary Lockwood, the titular lieutenant himself, is also forced to examine his own prejudices. A lot is made about the issues this episode caused with both Network NBC as well as the Marine Corps, who supported the series by providing extras, locations, and equipment for filming. The claim is often made that this particular episode caused the military to withdraw support for the show, and NBC was forced to pull the episode. However, this was not the first controversial episode of The Lieutenant, and contrary to popular belief, the episode did indeed air February 22, 1964, a lot of the popular accounts about the production of this episode originate with Roddenberry himself, and just how much he had to fight with NBC and the military over it is up for debate. But it is true that the military did pull support of the series, and that it was subsequently canceled by NBC in March. A critical analysis of the episode might reveal it is far from a complete examination of the subject of racism. The story ended up somewhat watered down, ostensibly to avoid upsetting audiences. In the final script, Marshall's character came across as sort of the angry young black man instead of the story laying any criticism on American society. The pat ending had the opposing characters bond during a military exercise and learn to get along. Still, this was fairly progressive for the time. Don Marshall went on to star in the series he's probably best remembered for, Irwin Allen's Land of the Giants, in 1968. Set in the far-off future of 1983, the series told the tale of the Spindrift, a suborbital passenger transport that, due to a space warp, crashes on a planet where things are 12 times larger, effectively making its inhabitants giants to the castaways. Marshall played capable first officer Dan Erickson, whose character was key in ensuring the survival of the passengers. Marshall also appeared on the 16th episode of Roddenberry's Star Trek, 
called the Galileo 7, where he played an astrophysicist officer stranded on a planet with other crew members. His role on Land of the Giants prevented him from being a recurring character on Star Trek, which was intended by first-season Trek producers. Bill Cosby's portrayal of U.S. intelligence agent Alexander Scott in 1965's I Spy may be the first appearance of a black actor as regular lead character in a non-subservient role on television. Not only was his character equal to that of Robert Culp's Kelly Robinson, Scotty was clearly the brains of the team. But it almost wasn't to be. Showrunner and co-creator Sheldon Leonard thought Cosby was perfect for the role of Scotty, except for one detail. He was black. However, after eventually concluding that television viewers had entered a more enlightened age, he eventually cast Cosby in the role. This was still a hard sell to NBC, who reportedly had endless logistical questions for the producer regarding the details of how the interracial secret agent duo would interact. Would the pair ride in the front seat of a car together? Who would drive? Would they share hotel rooms? Leonard laughingly wondered if they questioned whether they ever sat on the same toilet seat. To sidestep these situational questions, most episodes took place in other countries, like Japan, Hong Kong, or Mexico. While clearly progress was being made in the depiction of blacks, Variety noted criticism of the show's treatment of other minorities. The network and producer Sheldon Leonard have, with more guts than ordinary observers could imagine, cast Negro comedian Bill Cosby in a feature role, then turned about in the premiere stanza and racked another ethnic group, the Chinese, with casting that was a throwback to Fu Manchu and dialogue that would be more likely on the washroom walls of a southern bus station. Give Charlie Chan a fortune cookie, and he goes away happy. After much back and forth with producers, Cosby was also given love interests on the show in the form of actresses like Nancy Wilson, Cicely Tyson, and Barbara McNair. Bill Cosby also won the Emmy for Outstanding Actor in a Drama Series for I Spy's freshman season. Although a pariah today, I Spy established Bill Cosby as a star, one of the most well-known actors on television, and his role paved the way for others that would follow. In the 1966 fall TV season, Greg Morris would star as mechanical and electronics genius Barney Collier on Mission Impossible. African-American film and TV historian Donald Bogle described Collier as one of the first serious black actors to appear regularly on a series. Intelligent, reserved, shrewd, and almost resplendently cool and mildly remote. Morris was also something of a heartthrob, although the scripts usually kept him confined to the non-romantic sidelines of the action. Greg Morris would appear on Mission Impossible for all seven seasons. Over on ABC, Robert Hooks was keeping it real as police detective Jeff Ward on NYPD, joined by co-stars Jack Warden and Frank Converse. In an era where the Western still reigned supreme, 
NYPD joined the growing lineup of contemporary police shows. Like Dragnet that had come along over 15 years earlier, shows were 30 minutes in length and based on real cases and shot in New York City with cooperation of the mayor and the real NYPD. The show provided a no-nonsense, real, racial mix of cops, suspects, and witnesses. And the cases were as real as could be. In probably the first instance where a TV series dealt with homosexuality, the premiere episode had the force break up a blackmail ring that targeted closeted gay men. In its second season, NYPD was joined on Tuesday nights by the Mod Squad. Undercover, out of sight. Cops, one white, one black, one blonde. The Mod Squad. If NYPD represented the establishment, the Mod Squad represented the counterculture at the time. Its lead characters were three young dropouts, famously described as one black, one white, one blonde the hippest undercover cops on TV. Peggy Lipton was the blonde, playing a runaway daughter of a San Francisco prostitute. Michael Cole played the white rebel son that grew up in wealthy Beverly Hills. And newcomer Clarence Williams III was Link Hayes, one of 13 children from a Watts family. The trio was recruited into the LAPD to become undercover cops able to fit into places standard undercovers couldn't, with the assignment to weed out criminals preying on the young of America. Brought to screen by producers Aaron Spelling and Danny Thomas, The Mod Squad was an early series that dealt with all manner of socially relevant drama, such as the anti-war movement, child abuse, domestic violence, abortion, student protest, and, of course, race relations. Viewers were thus given a dose of action-adventure mixed with liberal politics. Longtime Saturday Review critic Robert Louis Sheehan said, Here was the TV industry, based upon a middle-class consumption culture, transforming one of the fiercest attacks upon its values into pleasing entertainment. When Jet Magazine did a cover article on the show, they reported that Black militants were critical of the Mod Squad because it gave aid and comfort to a fat majority that believes, because it really wants to believe, that everything is in apple pie order and hence do nothing to help alleviate the oppressed and hateful position blacks are left in. The article also went on to comment the show had a large black viewership. For the first time, viewers saw a contemporary black man complete with large afro, reflecting the dress, culture, and expressions of the time with slang terms, solid, soul, and the truncated phrase, ain't it the mother truth, thrown around. Producer Aaron Spelling also made it a point to consistently cast around 25% black actors in various roles. I try to keep away from Negro secretaries with one line to speak, a lot of producers in this town are using Negroes because it's the end thing. I think we must present them as intelligent people with the terrible needs they have. Even so, ABC still tried to keep some lines uncrossed. In one episode, the script called for Link to give Barnes a friendly kiss. 
Even though TV had already depicted interracial kisses, as we shall examine, ABC told Spelling to forget it. You can't do that, I was told. You can't have a black man kissing a white girl. I won, and ABC agreed to let it in, but they warned me I'd receive thousands of complaint letters. I didn't get one. Solid. The Mod Squad performed very well in the ratings and was very popular with young viewers, even spawning some merchandise, such as a 1968 set of Topps trading cards and spin-off novelizations. It aired for five seasons and 124 episodes. The cast reunited in a 1979 TV reunion movie, The Return of the Mod Squad, and in 1999 was adapted into a feature film. some of the stars of the bright new season coming this fall on ABC. Meet the people in room 222. I went to a segregated school. Oh, that's okay. So did I. <laughs> love! Embrace the many varieties of love American style. A new movie world premiere big stars every week on movie of the week meet us in september think how much fun it would be on abc Star Trek, rocketing in on NBC Week. The first adult space adventure blasts off Thursday, September 15th. Another series that came along in the 1966 fall season that was the brainchild of Gene Roddenberry and was quite progressive for its time was Star Trek. On the bridge of the now-legendary Starship Enterprise, a crew representing multiple ethnic and national backgrounds served together including a helmsman of Asian descent, a Russian navigator, and a person of color in the form of communications officer Lieutenant Uhura, played by Nichelle Nichols. Debuting September 8, 1966, this was possibly the first depiction of a black woman as regular character in a non-subservient role. As Nichols herself put it, she wasn't a maid or a tap dancer. Not only that, but as a full lieutenant, she was in a position in the chain of command on the bridge. Unlike when they opposed Bill Cosby being cast for I Spy, NBC did not balk at the casting of Nichelle Nichols, despite Roddenberry's later narrative that he had to battle the network to feature a relatively racially diverse cast. NBC by this time was encouraging the inclusion of minorities in its programs. A memo to that effect was sent to Roddenberry in 1966, in which he was specifically urged to cast black actors on the show. And in the original network notes regarding the first Star Trek pilot, they said, We applaud the attempt at a racial mix. It's exactly what we want. The casting of Nichols was celebrated by Ebony Magazine, who declared her character as The First Negro Astronaut a triumph of modern-day TV over modern-day NASA. Where did the character name originate? 
The book Geek Heroines explains. Roddenberry named Uhura purposefully to align to his beliefs that people are people while recognizing the importance of a black female character. Nichelle Nichols explained it in an interview that when she arrived to test for Star Trek, she was carrying a best-selling book of African history titled Uhuru, which means freedom in Swahili. After she was cast, Roddenberry took her to lunch and noted the book she had been reading interested him. He explained that he wanted the book to be involved in her character, to which she responded that it was Swahili, the national language for communication across the African continent. Responding that he wanted the character's last name to be Uhuru, but the word sounded too harsh for a female. Nichols suggested instead an alliteration by softening the word with an A to create Uhura. Roddenberry responded, That's it. That's your name. You named it. That's yours. And now I know where your character comes from, the United States of Africa. The character's name and backstory tied purposefully to create an important representation intended by Roddenberry. However, after just one season of opening hailing frequencies, Nichols' primetime TV exposure began to generate offers that presented an opportunity to return to her first love of musical theater. After discussing leaving the show with Roddenberry, he urged her to take the weekend to think it over. That weekend, she attended an NAACP fundraiser and met an enthusiastic fan who ended up changing her mind. But I didn't know that meeting a Star Trek fan would change my life. I was told that fan wanted to meet me, and I turned and looked into the face of Dr. Martin Luther King. I, I was breathless. He says, yes, I'm the Trekker. I'm a Star Trek fan. And he told me that Star Trek was one of the only shows that his wife Coretta and he would allow their little children to stay up and watch and thanked him, and I told him that I was leaving the show. All the smile came off his face, and he said, you can't do that. He said, don't you understand that for the first time, we are seen as we should be seen. You don't have a black role. You have an equal role. And when I went back to work on Monday morning, I went to Gene's office and I told him what had happened over the weekend. And he says, welcome home. We got a lot of work to do. Indeed, Nichols' role as Uhura inspired other young people of color. Whoopi Goldberg recalls seeing Uhura on screen for the first time. Well, when I was nine years old, Star Trek came on. I looked at it, and I went screaming through the house. Come here, Mom, everybody. Come quick, come quick. There's a black lady on television, and she ain't no maid. I knew right then and there I could be anything I wanted to be. Gene Roddenberry and producer Rick Berman created the role of the mysterious Guinan, especially for Goldberg, a role she played for 14 years. Mae Jemison, America's first black astronaut, grew up on the south side of Chicago in the 1960s, watching Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, starting at age 10. 
1992, she fulfilled her lifelong dream of going into space. Then the following year, realized another dream when she guest starred on Star Trek The Next Generation in an episode directed by LeVar Burton. None other than Nichelle Nichols herself was on hand to witness the event, the first time a real astronaut appeared on an episode of Star Trek. Nichelle Nichols also got to use her vocal talents on Trek, singing in a few episodes, and the actress has also released a few albums over the years, taking advantage of both her Star Trek identity and her natural singing ability. Star Trek and Lieutenant Uhura are often also credited with giving us TV's first interracial kiss, although the validity of that claim isn't so cut and dried. In fact, several TV shows have made this claim over the years as we keep finding earlier examples of interracial kisses. If we count UK television, the first instance of this seems to be on an episode of ITV Armchair Theater on February 1st, 1959. In the presentation of the teleplay Hot Summer Night, Jamaican actor Lloyd Record and English actress Andre Melly share an on-screen kiss. The same actor kisses English actress Elizabeth McLennan in 1962 on the teleplay You in Your Small Corner. Here across the pond, some argue I Love Lucy, which began airing in 1951, presented TV's first interracial kiss, although this would depend on one's interpretation of the Cuban ancestry of Desi Arnaz. A 1960 episode of the ABC series Adventures in Paradise featured Filipino actress Pilar Surat kissing both Robert Sampson and Gardner McKay during that hour of television. A 1966 episode of I Spy had multi-ethnic Eurasian actress Frost Nguyen kiss actor Robert Culp. A December 1967 TV special, Move In With Nancy, featured a kiss between Nancy Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr., although many will point out Nancy only kissed Sammy on the cheek. Now with this background, we come to Star Trek's 1968 episode, Plato's Stepchildren. In the story, the landing party consisting of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are called to an unknown planet with a medical distress call, but are prevented from leaving by the telekinetic humanoids that live there. Bored with a life where their mental will fulfills every need, they transport Lieutenant Uhura and Nurse Chapel down to the planet for their entertainment. In a bizarre performance, they mentally force both Spock and Nurse Chapel and Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura to kiss. Although infamous for its bizarre sequences that include diminutive actor Michael Dunn riding William Shatner on horseback, the episode ends with a surprisingly heartfelt lesson of tolerance and acceptance of those that are different, no matter shape, size, or color. Plato's stepchildren does seem to be the first instance of a mouth-to-mouth -mouth kiss between a Caucasian and an African-American on U.S. television. Evidently, several takes of the scene were filmed with varying levels of contact between the actors. In her autobiography, Beyond Uhura, Nichols insists the kiss was real with full lip contact, even though the take used 
could be open to interpretation. Initially worried about how this episode would play in the southern states, NBC received surprisingly little backlash over it. The episode did generate quite a bit of viewer mail, however, including this one, reportedly from a white southerner. I am totally opposed to the mixing of the races. However, any time a red-blooded American boy like Captain Kirk gets a beautiful dame in his arms that looks like Uhura, he ain't gonna fight it. The episode routinely makes lists of the top moments from the series. However, even on Star Trek, the 1967 episode Space Seed had Mexican actor of Spanish descent, Ricardo Montalban, kiss Madeline Rue. And in 1967's Mirror Mirror, multi-ethnic Eurasian actress Barbara Luna also kissed William Shatner. Lucky guy. So you see, just what TV show in the U.S. can be credited with TV's first interracial kiss is very much a matter of interpretation, and may change if more examples are discovered. There were other TV series of note in the late 1960s. Room 222 featured actor Lloyd Haynes in the leading role as teacher Pete Dixon at the fictional Walt Whitman High School depicted as an extremely racially diverse school in Los Angeles. Co-starring Michael Constantine and Karen Valentine, the show was very topical and of its time, with episodes dealing with issues revolving around the Vietnam War, women's rights, race relations, Watergate, as well as the issues faced by maturing teens. One episode dealt with a class clown who was self-conscious about being overweight, and another where a student was the victim of misplaced homophobia. The Bill Cosby Show arrived on the scene in September 1969, featuring Bill Cosby on his first self-titled sitcom, where he played a PE teacher at an L.A. high school. The show was unique in that it didn't use a laugh track. The Leslie Uggams Show also aired in 1969, featuring the return of an African-American woman as the host of a network variety show. The accomplished performer of stage and screen used the show to showcase herself and a number of black entertainers she used as regulars. Notably, her first appearance on television was as Beulah's niece on The Beulah Show with Ethel Waters. And while black representation on TV was making great strides in the 1960s, over on the Andy Griffith show that had run virtually the entire decade, it took until the last season of that series that a black person finally was given a speaking role. Oh, they had been shown in the background before as extras, a nice, well-dressed woman on the sidewalk here, some men in an army recruitment line there, but it took the involvement of the NAACP for producers to respond with the casting of Rockney Tarkington as Flip Conroy, ex-NFL player returning to Mayberry to coach the boys' football team. The character was never seen again, nor were there any more speaking parts for black actors on the show. Even on the revival TV movie Return to Mayberry in 1986, the town looked just as white as it had been in the 1960s. Coming along in the fall season of 1968 on NBC, Julia featured actress and singer Diane Carroll as the first black female 
lead character in a non-stereotypical role. The show was also notable for an early depiction of a single, working mother. While TV had given us plenty of single dads, viewers were hard-pressed to find a single TV mom since The Eve Arden Show in 1957. Although a 30-minute sitcom, Julia was also one of the very few that didn't incorporate a laugh track. However, when the show was reissued for syndication, one was added. When the show was acquired by new network Aspire in 2012, the show was restored to its original laugh track-free state. Created and produced by Hal Cantor, the show was billed as television's first black family series and gave us a vision of a black woman audiences hadn't yet seen outside the 23rd century. Here was a professional, attractive woman, glamorous even, in the medical field as a registered nurse working for the crotchety old Dr. Chegley, played by Lloyd Nolan. The pilot episode had widowed single mom Julia leaving young son Corey alone at home all day while she went out to interview for a job. Corey quickly meets neighbor boy Earl Wagadorn, played by young Michael Link, leading to Julia meeting Earl's mother Marie. Many episodes of Julia were typical sitcom fare. Julia deals with babysitters, kooky relatives visit, and numerous plots revolve around matchmaking attempts on Julia's behalf. Fred Williamson, Paul Winfield, Ketty Lester, Glenn Turman, Diana Sands, Don Marshall, Terry Carter, and Mel Stewart all make guest appearances. However, some plots attempted to incorporate more serious themes. In Episode 7, Am I, pardon the expression, blacklisted? The fact that Julia worked with a black nonprofit that taught underprivileged youth threatened to cost her a security clearance. In Episode 10, Paint Your Wagadorn, circumstances dictate that Julia must explain racism to Corey. In Episode 14, I Am Dreaming of a Black Christmas, Corey and Earl J. Wagadorn fight over whether Santa Claus is black or white. Indeed, the show attempted a very light-touch, sugar-coated, sitcom-y method of dealing with these themes. Take the sequence from the pilot episode, in which Earl J. Wagadorn casually remarked that Corey's mother was colored. After Corey responded, Of course, I'm colored too. Earl replies, You are? Oh boy! And the two resume their play. This scene seems to have been cut out of the later TV Land reruns. I found the early episodes to be quirky and sweet with a brisk visual editing style. The very young actors struggling to deliver lines added a cute factor that seemed to fade from later episodes as the series became more polished. Of course, the show was not well received by everyone. Reviewers made criticisms before a single episode aired. The Saturday Review denounced Julia for its sugar-coated portrait of black lives completely untouched by contemporary politics or current history. Actor Harry Belafonte publicly voiced opposition to the show. Viewers complained once the show came on the air that fall, critical of Julia's seemingly too comfortable lifestyle and wardrobe for a working, single black woman, as well as the absence of a father. Diane Carroll responded publicly to these criticisms. We're dealing with an entertainment medium, Julia is drama comedy. It isn't politically oriented. 
Because I am black, that doesn't mean I have to deal with problems of all black people. That's not my sole responsibility. All TV is divorced from reality. The Beverly Hillbillies don't go back and show you the life that they came from in the Ozarks. Their business is to make people laugh. It isn't our business to tell it as it is. Maybe people just don't want to see things like that after they've had a pretty grim day themselves. Ebony Magazine admitted the show wasn't perfect, but supported Julia. To the ghetto Negro who, despite his poverty, has vast television reception, this may not be telling it like it is. But for television, it is showing it like it has never been shown before. In response to criticism, Hal Cantor brought on black writers like Robert Goodwin, Harry Dolan, Jean Boland, and Ferdinand Leon, and Diane Carroll began examining scripts herself to find ways to input more realism into the storylines. Even so, a review of episode storylines suggests racial topics greatly decreased after the first season. Yes, the show was still produced by white men for largely white audiences and was not a true reflection of the average black experience of the late 60s. While the show is considered groundbreaking in that Diane Carroll presented the small screen's first lead actress of color in a non-stereotypical portrayal, the book Primetime Blues points out, Had the series appeared at the start of the integrationist movement in the late 1950s, it would have been more forward-looking and daring. But ironically, Julia's integrationist-style heroine arrived during an era when a segment of black America, young black America in particular, was loudly calling for cultural racial separatism during a time when African-American students were taking over administration buildings on campuses throughout the nation, when they were wearing dashikis and cultivating afros, when the slogan, Say it loud, I'm black, I'm proud, was heard daily. But untouched by all of this, Julia Baker lived in a fantasy version of Los Angeles, where the uprisings and disorders in ghettos around the country, including Watts, didn't appear to exist at all. One critic wrote that Julia would not recognize a ghetto if she stumbled into it. For all its faults, it was, after all, a sitcom. Framed by the restraints of the television industry, and by the late 60s, the single-parent sitcom was becoming a go-to standard. Although initially a rating success, the novelty with viewers wore off, and by the third season, Carol and Cantor both expressed the desire to work on other projects. Julia was canceled after three seasons and 86 episodes. Thirteen years later, Carol was in her words the first black bitch on television after she lobbied Aaron Spelling for a role on Dynasty, playing the villainous Dominique Devereaux. Diane Carroll, Mark Copage, and Michael Link reunited at The Hollywood Show in 2017. Diane Carroll died in 2019 at age 84. The 70s also started off a three-and-a-half-decade national showcase for black music and culture with what was called by many to be a black American bandstand. Hey! 
Soul Train was the brainchild of ex-DJ Don Cornelius and was birthed on WCIU-TV in Chicago in August 1970 as a live in-studio weekday show. The following year, Soul Train syndicated to 25 additional TV markets and rapidly expanded beyond that. In a decade where white audiences were served by niche musical programs like The Lawrence Welk Show and Hee Haw, Soul Train was the only musical show produced by blacks for black audiences during much of its run. For the first time, viewers in TV markets across the country could see entertainment complete with TV commercials designed for black audiences. The cultural impact of Soul Train was extensive, as writer Nelson George explains. I mean, it was a, it was a real glue. I mean, I think the thing about, one of many things about Soul Train is that it, it solidified national black culture. When I say that, I, I mean to say there had never been a regularly scheduled vehicle ever for black music, black style, black entertainment uh, in TV. It had never been done. When it comes on 1971, we're still in, we're in black power era. We're in an era where we have black mayors finally getting to be black mayors in major cities. We still have the black power. The, the riots of the 60s are still very, very vivid in the minds of everyone. So what Soul Train did was take black joy, the excitement, the vitality, the, uh, the spirit of soul music, of black music, of funk, of the beginnings of disco, and put it here in a, in a format for everyone could enjoy in their living room. It took the idea of blackness and took it away from the news as, as strife or as uh, conflict and made it accessible not just to black people but also to, to uh, white corporations because you began seeing slowly advertising on Soul Train. I mean, the thing about Soul Train was that it wasn't just that the, the uh, dancers and the music was black, but you began seeing black commercials. Soul Train became the longest-running, first-run, nationally syndicated program in American television history, and it held that record until surpassed by Entertainment Tonight in 2016. After an incredible 1,117 episodes, the Soul Train dance floor went dark in March 2006. When discussing how the black exploitation film movement of the 1970s found itself making inroads on television, there's only one place to start. Having appeared three times in theaters as the black private dick who's a sex machine to all the chicks, Shaft exploded on the TV scene in a series of seven 90-minute TV movies as part of the new CBS Tuesday Night Movies. This was when CBS was following NBC's Mystery Wheel concept, which rotated recurring TV detectives in a revolving 90-minute series. The theme song was there, minus those infamous lyrics, as Richard Roundtree reprised his Shaft movie role on Tuesday nights. However, the theme song, along with the sex and violence that made the Shaft films memorable, weren't the only things that got watered down. As Roundtree himself said, the fans of the Shaft movies have to realize that you can't put that Shaft on TV. If you edited any of those three movies for television, you'd wind up with maybe 15 minutes of usable stuff. But while Shaft fought the man in the films, on TV he worked with the man, often calling on white police lieutenant Al Rossi, played by Ed Barth. 
only one of the installments attempted to work race relations into the plot, in The Kidnapping. The series wasn't well received, but there was another reason the Shaft series may not have gained an audience. The series alternated in the same time slot every three weeks, along with a TV movie of the week and another TV movie's series, Hawkins, which starred Jimmy Stewart as Billy Jim Hawkins, a rural lawyer who investigated the cases he was involved in. Think Matlock. The audience for Hawkins was likely vastly different than the audience that would have found Shaft appealing. The end result being the discontinuation of both series. While CBS was offering Shaft for the fall of 1973, NBC was preparing their own black private detective TV movies for that fall, featuring James McEachin as Tenafly. Brought to the air by writers Richard Levinson and William Link, if those names sound familiar, they were the creative team behind shows like Mannix, Ellery Queen, Columbo, and Murder, She Wrote. To buck the trend, Tenafly was a happily married, middle-class family man that had given up being a cop for the better pay of the private sector in L.A. He didn't chase beautiful women and also tried to avoid the car chases and gunfights that seemed par for the course for other TV detectives. Barely remembered today, Tenafly only flew for four installments. Get Christy Sensing a trend with a popular string of female-led films like Coffee, Foxy Brown, and Cleopatra Jones, ABC made their attempt to appeal to the black audience with Get Christy Love, an ABC movie of the week in January 1974. Christy Love was adapted from a crime novel called The Ledger. The white NYPD police detective Christy Opara was transformed into the black and beautiful Christy Love and brought to life by actress Teresa Graves. Graves had been a regular on Rowan Martin's Laugh-In and had a few appearances here and there in film. Originally, Cicely Tyson was set to play Christy Love, but she bowed out at the last minute, supposedly due to a foot injury. Actually, Tyson chose to star in the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman instead. The pilot movie was well-received, and a series was immediately planned. Jet Magazine called Teresa Graves, Television's most delightful detective, the epitome of a tough lady cop, with more feminine features than Venus. However, there was a snag between the pilot film and production of the series. Teresa Graves had become one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and although she was under contract to star in the picked-up series, was adamant that her depiction of Christy Love was in line with the principles of her new faith. Thus, Christy Love would wear modest clothing, wouldn't engage in violence, lying, and wouldn't even raise her voice to her superiors. Scripts were rewritten, and the series aired that fall. Thus, the series was a far cry from the likes of Coffee or Foxy Brown, or even that pilot TV movie. Still, the series was notable for giving us TV's first black female cop, as well as the first hour-long dramatic series featuring a woman of color. Originally produced by Paul Mason and David L. Walper, 
the series was turned over to Glenn Larson midseason for a slight revamp. However, the ratings were anemic, not cracking into even the top 50 shows that season. And after nearly a full season of 22 episodes, ABC called it quits. Teresa Graves tragically died in a house fire in 2002 at age 54. In the 1970s, the face of the American sitcom was also about to change. While the previous two decades largely presented a wholesome, middle-class depiction of white families in shows like Leave it to Beaver, Make Room for Daddy, and The Andy Griffith Show, former politician and TV host Les Brown characterizes these portrayals as counterfeit. There is no death, no disease, no emotional illness, no sex anxiety, no real financial insecurity, no religious doubt, and no personal unfulfillment in TV's antiseptic households. The 70s brought a new focus on non-white ethnic characters in shows like Welcome Back, Cotter, Chico and the Man, Poppy, and even Que Pasa USA on PBS. And while some black-themed sitcoms such as That's My Mama and What's Happening were moderately successful at best, seen far more in afternoon reruns than during their primetime initial runs, two stood out from the rest. In the 1970s, one name began to stand out among TV producers and became known for inserting current social and political issues into his shows. Norman Lear made a name for himself with his first big hit sitcom, All in the Family. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. All in the Family introduced controversial subjects into its storylines for an 8 p.m. show. Viewers became used to Archie Bunker's blue-collar, casual bigotry and misogyny, clashing with liberal-minded son-in-law Michael Stivick, the meathead, and often telling his wife Edith to stifle. The show was also undeniably funny and was both nominated and won a slew of awards during its nine seasons on the air. Lear quickly spun off Edith Bunker's cousin Maud into her own series, starring B. Arthur. Maud was played as sort of the opposite of Archie Bunker, a politically liberal women's liber in favor of civil rights and gender equality. Maud saw its own share of controversy, with the main characters directly dealing with alcoholism, homophobia, race relations, and in one infamous two-part episode, abortion. The first showing of the two-parter, Maud's Dilemma, was carried by all but two affiliate stations. But when it came time to rerun the episodes, nearly 40 affiliates refused to air them. Norman Lear's adaptation of the Broadway play Hot L. Baltimore even featured TV's first gay couple as regular characters. The show was not a hit and was very short-lived, but was popular with ABC VP at the time, Michael Eisner, who never missed a taping. Lear would soon break another TV taboo. While older shows such as I Love Lucy introduced the idea of interracial couples to TV audiences, the first instance of a mixed-race marriage between a white man and a black woman 
on series television seems to have been Tom and Helen Willis of the Jeffersons. The Willises were played by Franklin Cover and Roxy Roker. On the show, Sherman Hemsley as George Jefferson would endlessly poke fun at their interracial marriage. Helen would often strike back at George, referring to his height. To engage her husband in amorous activities, Helen would sing Stormy Weather, a callback to the first person of color in television history, Ethel Waters. In real life, Roxy Roker was married to a Jewish man, and they had one child. You know him as rocker Lenny Kravitz. The breakout character of the show proved to be the maid Florence, played by Marla Gibbs, who was given her own spin-off series, Checking In, in 1981, co-starring Mash's Larry Linville. When the show failed with dismal ratings, Gibbs returned to the Jeffersons for the remainder of its run, but her ability to carry a show was undeniable and in 1985 was given the lead role on 227, which became a hit on NBC's Saturday night comedy lineup. I mean, no place, child. <laughs> While The Jeffersons was ostensibly a positive portrayal of an upwardly mobile black family moving on up in society due to hard work and business success, there were some critics that felt the antics of George Jefferson was a return to the stereotypes of black characters shown in films in the earlier part of the century. But the show never tried to be an examination of societal issues like Lear's other shows, usually. However, one episode did make an impact on me. In the season 7 episode, Sorry, Wrong Meeting, George, Tom Willis, and Mr. Bentley mistakenly attend what turns out to be a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan. When the Klan leader suffers a heart attack, George revives him with CPR. Instead of a pat resolution, we get this. Dad, well, the paramedic said if Mr. Jefferson hadn't given you CPR, you wouldn't have made it. He saved my life? Yeah. You should have let me die. Notably, the continued bigotry given in response to an act of mercy made an impression on the man's son, played by Ike Eisenman, who appears to reevaluate the beliefs he was taught. Even though it wasn't universally appreciated, The Jeffersons was extremely successful during its original run and in syndication running 11 seasons and 253 episodes. It was also the winner of two Emmy Awards, one for Isabel Sanford as lead actress in a comedy series, and about a dozen more nominations. Other sitcoms of the era that featured black lead characters faced even more criticism. What's Happening, Sanford and Son, and Good Times were some of these shows. Good Times, which ran from 1974 to 1979, originally featured an intact two-parent family in the form of the Evans, living in the Chicago projects. The Evans faced real-life and death issues, and shows dealt with poverty, VD, unemployment, gangs, suicide, drugs. In an era before shows were known for very special episodes, if there was a social issue, 
the Evans probably dealt with it on good times. Although at times black writers would be employed, such as Ilunga Adele, Eric Monte, and Richard Pryor, who would write for shows like Sanford and Son and What's Happening, these sitcoms were largely created, written, and produced by white men. In fact, in 1974, Red Fox walked out on Sanford and Son over a dispute with producers. In an interview with Ebony Magazine, he criticized the production for using far too many white writers on the show. The few episode scripts that were delivered by black writers were often rewritten. As a result, he said the show reflected white versions of black humor, harking back to criticisms of Amos and Andy. Good Times is one of those few exceptions where people of color had a creative role. Eric Monte and Mike Evans, yes, the actor that played George Jefferson's son, Lionel, left as Jefferson's role to work on the show. The show was then developed into a series and produced by Norman Lear. Eric Monte expressed frustration at working with white writers and producers on Good Times. Working on Good Times was real hard. All the white writers wanted to do stereotypes, and I refused. Every week, we'd argue and fight. They would ignore what I suggested and take all that, yes up, boss, stuff to the cast, and John Amos and Esther Roll would have a fit. Originally, I pictured J.J. as a street-smart hustler who drove his honest, hard-working parents crazy. And it was the J.J. character played by Jimmy Walker that proved to be the biggest issue people had with the show. Critics of J.J. felt he harked back to the Amos and Andy and Step and Fetch It stereotypes of the past. Many, including cast members, it turned out, took issue with J.J.'s buffoonery and made their voices heard. Esther Roll expressed her opinion of J.J. in a 1975 interview with Ebony Magazine. He's 18 and he doesn't work. He can't read or write. He doesn't think. The show didn't start out to be that. Little by little, with the help of the artist, I suppose, because they couldn't do that to me, they have made J.J. more stupid, and they have enlarged the role. Negative images have been slipped in on us through the character of the oldest child. John Amos also famously voiced his opposition to the character. The differences we had on that show, and we had a number of differences uh, as evidenced by my early departure from the show, was I felt that with two other younger children, one of whom to aspire, who aspired to become a Supreme Court justice, that would be uh, Ralph Carter or Michael, and the other, uh, Bernadette Stannis, I think, she aspired to become a surgeon. And the differences I had with the producers of the show was that I felt too much emphasis was being put on J.J. and his chicken hat and saying dynamite every third page when just as much emphasis and mileage could have been gotten out of my other two children and the concomitant jokes and, and you know humor that could have come out of that. But I wasn't the most diplomatic guy, like I said, in those days, and they got tired of having their lives threatened over jokes. So they said, I'll tell you what, why don't we kill him off and we'll, get on with our, we'll all get on with our lives. Life's too short. However, J.J. became the most popular character of the show. By season three, the credits began calling out, starring Jimmy Walker. 
and it was both John Amos and Esther Roll that ended up leaving Good Times, not Jimmy Walker. Unhappy with the overwhelming whiteness of the writing team, as well as the J.J. character, Amos was let go from the show when Norman Lear didn't renew his contract, being told he had become a disruptive element. Although today some believe that he voluntarily quit, he has always maintained his account, such as in this 1976 article in Jet Magazine. I was fired. Norman Lear called me a month ago and told me my option was not being picked up. That's the same as being fired. His character was thus famously killed off in a two-parter at the beginning of season four. Florida Evans dealing with the death of James Evans on screen is one of the most remembered moments of TV history, black or not. Damn, damn, damn! (laughs) Esther Roll voluntarily left following season four over the reasons we've covered. But she did return for the final season after producers assured her they would make the J.J. character more respectable and tone down his antics. Many felt the show was never the same after the departure of Amos and particularly of Esther Roll, whose character of Florida Evans, housekeeper on Norman Lear's sitcom Maud, had been sort of spun off into her own series. In many ways, Esther Roll was the heart and conscience of the show and was the one who insisted on having a husband and father present in the family to begin with, to serve as a positive role model when producers were going to originally have the Evans be a single-parent family. Many white viewers fondly remember watching Good Times, and I'll have to count myself among them, watching it in 80s reruns at 5 p.m. daily. And in 2004, Saturday Night Live did a send-up of Good Times, where Kenan Thompson did a hilarious version of Florida Evans. Michael Evans! You are behind on your chores first and about to get whooped second. And Janet Jackson actually reprised her role of Penny, Walona's adopted daughter. The skit referenced at least five Good Times episodes, but unfortunately the reaction of the live audience was a little lukewarm, and they might have been too young to get the direct references. Good Times, as well as All in the Family and The Jeffersons, were remade with new actors in 2019 and aired live on ABC as part of its Live in Front of a Studio Audience specials. John Amos, Marla Gibbs, Janet Dubois, Jimmy Walker, and Bernadette Stannis all made appearances. Another tidbit that happened during production of Good Times, Black Panther activists confronted Norman Lear in his tandem production's office about the show. Reportedly, they barged into his production office and demanded to speak to the garbage man, referring to Lear, and told him something to the effect of, Good Times is bullshit, asking him why the characters had to live in a slum, be so poor, experience so much crime, and perpetuate so many stereotypes about the black experience. If we could have been a fly on the wall during that meeting. It was this confrontation that led to the creation of the Jeffersons, which attempted to show a black family in a more positive, upwardly mobile light. Lear took characters that had been appearing on All in the Family since season one and spun them off into their own show. 
and it was talented singer-songwriter Janet Dubois whose character of Willona on Good Times would often make fantastic entrances to the Evans apartment in fashionable outfits, who wrote and performed the Jeffersons' famous theme. Dubois' daughter, Kesha Gupta-Fields, says Dubois wrote the song as a promise to her mother, Lillian Dubois, that when she obtained a certain level of stardom and finally got a piece of the pie, that her dream was to essentially have her mom live in a deluxe apartment. In 2007, she adapted the song into a modern spiritual, moving on up to meet Jesus, in her album, Hidden Treasures. Dubois was also a patron of the arts, and along with Danny Glover, co-founded the Pan-African Film Festival, the largest black film festival in America that is held in Los Angeles. Janet Dubois died this last February. Norman Lear's legacy of television remains today. His sitcoms were some of the most successful of the 1970s. All in the Family, Sanford and Son, One Day at a Time, and Maud, in addition to The Jeffersons and Good Times. His name has become somewhat synonymous with the introduction of ethnically diverse characters to American television. The firing of John Amos from Good Times opened up his schedule for other projects. Three weeks after he found out his contract would not be renewed, he got a call from David Walper, who had just obtained the rights to adapt Alex Haley's Roots for ABC. Tonight, we present a landmark in television entertainment. Roots, the true story Alex Haley uncovered in his 12 years search across the seven generations of his ancestry. After two years of production, we present this incredible saga in an epic motion picture. Roots, the current number one best-selling novel, is the television event of the year. A film spanning more than a hundred years, generation to generation, continent to continent, slavery to freedom. Hear me, O African. The flesh of your flesh has come to freedom. We are free. Roots, starring Ben Vereen, Edward Asner, Lorne Green, Cicely Tyson, O.J. Simpson, Linda Day George, Chuck Connors, John Amos, Leslie Uggams, Lloyd Bridges, Burl Ives, Louis Gossett Jr., Vic Morrow, George Stanford Brown, Ralph Waite, and introducing LeVar Burton as Kunta Kinte. Now, we are proud to present the triumph of an American family, Roots. In January 1977, ABC aired an epic eight-night, 12-hour miniseries based on Alex Haley's novel, Roots, which became a topic of national conversation in a mass communal viewing experience, attracting some 130 million viewers, half the U.S. population at the time, representing some 85% of TV households. Brought to screen by producer David L. Walper, who had brought to the screen Get Christy Love, the miniseries followed the life of young Kunta Kinte, from his capture in Gambia to his new life of slavery in the United States. Following him into adulthood and his marriage to Belle, as well as the lives of daughter Kizzy and grandson Chicken George and great-grandson Tom, 
who finally saw the freedom his ancestors had dreamed of. Roots was nominated for every Emmy acting category and won nine Emmys altogether. It was the most ambitious TV miniseries to date, with an all-star cast and a budget of $6.6 million. New faces like LeVar Burton joined familiar ones such as John Amos, Ben Vereen, Louis Gossett Jr., and Leslie Uggams. On the strategy of casting the white actors, the Encyclopedia of Television has the following input. Familiar television actors like Lauren Green were chosen for the white secondary roles to reassure audiences. The white actors were featured disproportionately in network previews. For the first episode, the writers created a conscience-stricken slave captain, Edward Asner, a figure who did not appear in Haley's novel, but was intended to make white audiences feel better about their historical role in the slave trade. Even the show's consecutive night format allegedly resulted from network apprehensions. ABC programming chief Fred Silverman hoped that the unusual schedule would cut his network's imminent losses and get Roots off the air before sweeps week. Yes, originally planning the miniseries to air over eight weeks, ABC exec Fred Silverman took the episodes home to watch with his wife over eight consecutive nights, what we would now call binge viewing. He made the decision to air it the same way, and other ABC brass didn't argue, as they had a fear it would not be well-received and dragged down their ratings over two months. With it done in just over a week, ABC could move on to other programming. This is why it ultimately aired in January, instead of during the February ratings sweeps. As Silverman said, I did not have enough faith in it. ABC also had approval of the casting, and nearly didn't cast LeVar Burton, for young Kunta Kinte, due to the incredible reason given by one executive, because his lips were too thick. Fortunately, reason prevailed, and Burton was cast, later going on to great success with Reading Rainbow, Star Trek The Next Generation, and a career behind the camera as well. For something produced for broadcast television, the series was raw, gritty, and powerful, something none of us had seen on television before. In an unusual move, partial nudity was allowed as the dress of the native Gambians was matter-of-factly shown. From the cruelty of the slavers to the rape and the subsequent brutal life of the slaves, man's inhumanity to man was on full display. At least what could be shown on American network television. Memorable scenes were seared into the minds of viewers. The merciless lashing of Kunta Kinte as he refuses to accept his slave name of Toby. The rape of Kizzy. When Tom kills Jimmy Brent. When Kizzy visits her father's grave marked with his slave name. And when Alex Haley appears at the conclusion, revealing he is a seventh-generation descendant of Kunta Kinte. For the first time, there it was on screen the uncomfortable truth of the origins of American descendants of slavery. The success of Roots enabled other TV presentations to be greenlit. The teleplay Ceremonies in Dark Old Men, 
which depicted a black family in 1950s Harlem in conflict with itself and changing American values. The TV movie Green Eyes with Paul Winfield as a Vietnam War veteran returning to that country in search of the son he fathered while there. Maya Angelou's memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, starring Diane Carroll and Esther Roll. The 1978 six-hour miniseries, King, with Paul Winfield as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. David Walper went on to produce Roots, The Next Generation, as well as miniseries North and South and The Thornbirds. Roots itself was remade in 2016 for the History Channel. In the 1970s, when the delivery of television began to change from an over-the-air broadcast model to a subscription model where packages of channels were delivered to homes via cable, industry lobbyist Robert Johnson began to realize the lack of programming designed for African-American viewers. In 1980, Johnson left his lobbyist position and with wife Stella, used his political and business connections to found the first cable television network owned and operated by blacks for black audiences. Just over 40 years from that early broadcast of the Ethel Waters show, black entertainment television signed on. While it initially broadcast only two hours a week as a block of programming, on what would be known as USA Network, only available in a handful of East Coast cities. In the early 80s, it expanded to fill 24 hours of programming across North America and the Caribbean. Early staples of programming were Video Soul, which focused on music videos by black artists that weren't getting much play on MTV. In 1983, the smooth-talking Donnie Simpson came on as host of Video Soul, who remained with the show until its cancellation in 1997. Other early programming that filled the schedule were reruns of older TV shows and movies featuring black actors. By 1985, BET began to diversify its programming, adding politically-oriented news programs, comedy showcases, talk shows, and shows with youth appeal, such as Teen Summit. In 1991, the network became the first black-controlled TV company to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and in October 2000, was purchased by the media juggernaut Viacom. Later BET programming was subject to much criticism by some in the black community, in particular, BET content that aired post-Viacom takeover when the network was no longer black-owned or operated. Aaron Magruder, creator of The Boondocks, comic strip and TV series, and vocal opponent of BET, has blamed it for dumbing down black people and their culture, calling it black evil television. In 2006, the network came under fire for not providing live coverage of Coretta Scott King's funeral. Instead, running regularly scheduled music videos. BET co-founder Stella Johnson said that she herself is ashamed at what the network has become. I don't watch it. I suggest to my kids that they don't watch it. When we started BET, it was going to be the Ebony Magazine on television. 
We had public affairs programming. We had news. I had a show called Teen Summit. We had a large variety of programming. But the problem is that then the video revolution started up. And then something started happening and I didn't like it at all. And I remember during those days, we would sit up and watch these videos and decide which ones were going on and which ones were not. We got a lot of backlash from recording artists, and we had to start showing them. I didn't like the way women were being portrayed in these videos. BET now reportedly reaches some 75% of U.S. households. While BET itself has certainly not been immune to criticism, author Nelson George said, BET is an idea that needed to exist. During the writing of this podcast, the historical depictions of people of color and entertainment have come under fire. HBO Max briefly pulled Gone with the Wind from its platform, then returned it with content that frames the film in its historical context. Certain episodes or entire series of far more recent TV shows are being pulled from various platforms altogether. I have mixed feelings about this. What a treasure it would be to have recordings of the Leightons, even though it would likely be a typical depiction of a black domestic servant of the era, or for The Beulah Show to be released in its entirety for modern audiences to examine Ethel Waters' role, admittedly in all its tacky 1950s condescension, perhaps as part of a presentation on the history of the Mammy archetype in visual entertainment. Unlike the Leightons, Original 35mm film prints of Beulah are stored in an archive. We need to be aware of our entertainment history, with all its problematic or outright racist depictions. Perhaps along with commentary to contextualize and frame it. Perhaps with a new content rating denoting outdated depictions. Or perhaps just let the viewer come to their own conclusions. When asked about even recent shows being pulled from distribution over blackface scenes, Idris Elba said, I think viewers should know that people made shows like this. Yes, out of respect for the time and the current movement, commissioners and archive holders are pulling things they think are exceptionally tone-deaf at this time. Fair enough, and good for you. But I think, moving forward, people should know that freedom of speech is accepted but the audience should know what they're getting into. To move forward as a society, we have to know where we've been. And if we dare think bigoted thinking is a thing of the past, I could have filled the entire runtime of this podcast with content like this. What country are you from? Where are you? I'm going to call the police. You don't run into people. I'm a citizen here. You're not. You're an ugly foreigner. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. There is an African-American man. I am in such a He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. I'm being threatened by a man into the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. And why did you stay in Mexico? <gasps> I, I called you a n***. You're a n***. Nasty n***. Go back to Mexico if you want, you want to keep speaking Spanish. Go back to your Mexican country. Because people like this are the reason our country's going what it's going to. Because I've been killing his kind for longer than you've probably been alive. His kind, I've been killing for almost 20 years. 
What are you gonna call? Immigration. For what? For you. Why? Because you're not legal. My advice to you, my advice to you, if you don't like it here in America, go back to Africa. Go back to Africa. Go back. Well, this is by far not the final word on black TV history. There may be additional pioneers of black TV history I overlooked or as yet remain to be discovered. I was pleased to present what I found. Did I miss something? Want to comment on any of the topics presented here? Join the conversation on the Forgotten TV Facebook page and Twitter feed or comment on this episode at Forgotten.tv. I encourage listeners to seek out other podcasts highlighting black voices and experiences. Your podcast player may be featuring some of these right now. Might I recommend Black History Year and their episode, Destroying the Narrative White Hollywood Created, and Creative Tension with Elliot Robinson, particularly episodes 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 17, which explore black stereotypes and caricatures in entertainment especially blackface and the mammy archetype, including the history of Aunt Jemima. And if you're interested, I'll be expanding on the topics presented here in the Patron Supplemental Podcast. I'll explore more on the history of Our Gang or the Little Rascals, more about Willie Best, also known as Sleep and Eat, and more about Aunt Jemima, From the origins of the myth to how corporate propaganda backed by a long-running radio show, ancillary products like children's toys, and a relationship with Disney embedded Aunt Jemima into American mythology. Thanks to all the Patreon supporters who help make this podcast possible, like executive producers Doc Pinko and Will Welton, producers Julio Capa, Eric Fusco, and Ron as well as all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Let's take a look at shows in the works for upcoming episodes of Forgotten TV. James Hunter. Just when I first fell in love and everything was fine, my family had to move to Boston from a small town in Oregon. I was 15 years old and I had to start a whole new life. Travel through time to help history along. Give it a push where it's needed. Delos, builders of Westworld, must stop Quaid. Assigned is Security Chief John Moore and Special Agent Pam Williams. Let's face it, John, it's your wits against Quaid's machines. I didn't ask for this. I was a test driver. I liked the job. One day the doctor told me I had some kind of special blood. 
I don't understand it. But I know this. Everything they're offering, I don't want. I gotta live free. Podcasts on James at 15, Search, Angie, Voyagers, Streethawk, Beyond Westworld, Auto Man, The Immortal, and V the Series. Some of these episodes will even feature a visit with actors and show creators. Stay subscribed to this podcast feed for these great upcoming shows. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by ABC, CBS, NBC, 20th Century Fox Television, Tribune Entertainment, Universal Television, Tandem Productions, Walper Productions, Paramount Television, Viacom CBS, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show, film, or streaming service mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2020 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on sources such as books, period news media, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making those audio clips possible. Democracy Now! Ragtime Dorian Henry, Xanadude192, Warhol Soup 100, Eddie Romaine, The 78 Prof, British Pathé, The Shepherd's Field, The Riverbends Channel, Real Black, Jeff Sabu, Remember Our Music, 667 None, The WOC Archive, Room with a View, Disco 79, AM Pop Films, Cost Ander, Rare Facts, Videoholic 50s, 60s, 70s, The Rap Sheet, TV's Greatest, Friends of Glenn, The Glenn Campbell Facebook Group, Deputé, Trekkie Channel, Stephen Velez, Video Archives, Variety Showland, Travis 7310, Diane Fan, Music World TV, 11DB11, Shout Factory, Spud TV, Foundation Interviews, Running with Football, Saturday Night Live, Quick Ride. Sources of quotes and background information were obtained from the following sources. Jet, Ebony, Radio Mirror, and Awake Magazines. The websites, PBS's Pioneers of Television, Afropunk, Essence, the Yale Library Archive, The New York Times, Ammo Mama, The African American Registry, jfredmcdonald.com, 
earlytelevision.org. Black History Now, She Made History, Black America Web, Princeton Info, The Village Voice, DumontHistory.tv, NPR, Blackface.com, The Jim Crow Museum, FibberMcGeeAndMolly.com, The Ubuntu Biography Project, JacksonUpperCo.com, Vulture, American History for Travelers, Atlas Obscura, Mental Floss, The Root, Black Excellence, Rand's Esoteric OTR, Eyes of a Generation, Real Rundown, Classic TV Info, TV Party, The AV Club, Shepherd Express, and WNNO Radio. Tell me more from NPR News. The documentary, Taint Nobody's Business, Queer Blues Divas of the 1920s, as well as the books, Clinging to Mammy, The Faithful Slave in 20th Century America by Mickey McElia. All Night Party, The Women of Bohemian Greenwich Village in Harlem, 1913-1930 by Andrea Barnett. Our Gang, A Racial History of the Little Rascals by Julia Lee. Burning Down the House, Recycling Domesticity, edited by Rosemary George. On the Air, The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning. Primetime Blues by Donald Bogle. The Encyclopedia of Television, edited by Horace Newcomb. Frank and Ann Hummert's Radio Factory by Jim Cox. Son of Golden Turkey Awards by Harry and Michael Medved. Geek Heroines by Karen Walsh. Window Dressing on the Set, Women and Minorities in Television by the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Aaron Spelling, A Primetime Life by Aaron Spelling and Jefferson Graham and numerous period newspaper articles found at newspapers.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.